year in uh, the month of August, which kind of serves as the beginning of the new year for us, uh, we re- re- uh, revisit our vision statement as a way to remind ourselves again at the beginning of the year why we exist around here. We have said ever since this began five years ago and we adopted it, we have said all along that we do not want um, the glory of Christ and the good of the bluegrass to be merely a catchy tagline on letterhead or website, but we do want it to inform and form everything we do. Uh, So that's why we revisit it every year. We think it's important to do that. This year, I want to come at it this way. Um, I, I, want to do, I, want, I want to revisit our vision by looking at the Great Commission, a very familiar passage that I just read. The structure of the Great Commission essentially um, is our vision statement. We exist for the glory of Christ, verse 18. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And the good of the bluegrass. It's a contextual way of saying 19 and 20. And our confidence, confidence statement that we depend upon God in prayer here uh, would be verse 20 as well. And so the glory of Christ and the good of the bluegrass is simply a particularized, contextual way of saying we exist for the Great Commission. And that's what I want to show us in the coming weeks. So today we consider once again the glory of Christ by considering just verse 18. I read the whole passage, but just one verse this morning. Verse 18 of the Great Commission. And here's how I'm going to come at it. I want to ask two questions from this verse. Um, One is a theological question, and then one is an application question. The first is this. What is Jesus claiming? And then what is Jesus demanding? So what's he claiming and what's he demanding? Let's first start with his claim, and this is going to get a little bit into the theology of it, which is good, um, to inform us of of what exactly he's saying here. Verse 18, let me read again this very, very brazen claim of Jesus. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All right, first, let me define authority. It's probably important. In our modern language, a word that might be better uh, to get at the meaning here would be, um, would think of authority as ownership. Uh, Of course, authority means that Jesus is in charge. Of course, Jesus is in charge, but it's more than that. He is not in charge in the sense of he is the manager or the boss of something that he does not own, that is owned by another. When he speaks of authority, he speaks of ownership. And notice he says all authority. If we talk about authority as ownership, what he's saying here is, I own everything. And notice he says heaven and earth. Heaven and earth in scripture speaks to the invisible spiritual realm and the visible physical realm. So this is expansive. Jesus owns heaven and earth. There is not one square inch in the whole domain of existence over which the risen Christ does not declare Mine, Abraham Kuyper. Now, there's something else interesting here, which will help us appreciate the significance of his claim. Jesus says, all authority, all ownership in heaven and on earth has been what? Given to me. Now, that raises an interesting question that maybe, you, this is a very familiar passage, maybe you've wondered this before. Didn't he already have it? Hasn't Jesus 
eternally owned all things? And if not, who owned it before him? It's a strange statement by Jesus to say that authority has been given to him, but it's not an isolated one. He talks this way often, Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. John 3, 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John 13, 3. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. John 17, 2. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh. Sounds very much like our text. You have given him authority over all things. So repeatedly, Jesus speaks of the Father giving him authority over everything. But again, hasn't Jesus always owned everything? Isn't that a foundational uh, Trinitarian doctrine? Well, there's an important nuance here to appreciate. Um, Precise theology, let's just do some theological work here just briefly. Um, Let's do some theology. Precise theology says that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, is eternal. Um, To say something different would be heresy. The second person of the Trinity, forever existing, no beginning, no end, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, creator of all things, sustainer of all things, sovereign of all things, God eternal. So it is right to say that the Son of God has eternal ownership over all things. However, the holy mystery of the incarnation, the scandal of Christmas, is that the eternal Son of God became flesh, became being the operative word there. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the second person of the Trinity took upon himself the nature of a man, a real man, fully human, not half God, half human, fully human, as human as you are, not partially human, full humanity, born of a woman, real flesh, real blood, real historical person. That is not his eternal nature. That is his incarnate nature. And so the Son of God is eternal while the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, this person was conceived, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, our creed says. And it is this person, this God-man, who is given ownership over all things in heaven and earth. And this is what is being emphasized when Jesus of Nazareth, this person, this human, continually says that all things have been given to me. So let, let the doctrine take your breath away because it is breathtaking doctrine. A man owns heaven and earth. A first century Palestinian person owns existence. Now, it is this mysterious nuance that led us to nuance our vision statement the way we did. It is, of course, not wrong in any way to say that we exist for the glory of God. Of course that's true. Of course that's why we exist. And I wouldn't correct somebody if they quoted it that way. But we specify Christ for a reason. Because the Bible specifies Christ. In fact, the Father has specified Christ. God has authority over all things, and God has entrusted that authority to the incarnate Son of God, known in His human nature as Jesus Christ. 
Likewise, all things exist for the glory of God. That's true. But the glory of God is fully revealed in the glory of the incarnate Jesus. The great mystery of all of existence, of all of history, is that existence is all about this one man, Jesus Christ. This man reigns supreme as the authority and glory of heaven and earth. So that's the theology. That's what he's claiming here, okay? This person is claiming to own heaven and the universe. Now that is, of course, a bold claim, but it is a claim that he vindicated by his resurrection. Now, what I really want to talk about this morning, theology aside, are the implications of that claim. That is where I want to spend most of our time. What is Jesus claiming authority, ownership of heaven and earth? Second question, what is Jesus demanding? To ask what Jesus is demanding in this statement is, seems to be an unanswerable question because there's no demand here, there's no imperative. It's just a statement, right? He's just saying, all authority, heaven and earth, has been given to me. Now, next week, we will look at the therefore he does give an explicit command. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of the nations, which, by the way, does that not, now do you get a greater appreciation for the Great Commission? Jesus says, I own all things, therefore, go and subdue all things for me, the nations, for me. But even before we get to his explicit demand, there is for us here an implicit demand, and it's going to call us to recommit ourselves again to be a community that exists for the glory of Christ. The, the demand of his claim is found in the dilemma of his claim. What is the dilemma of what Jesus is saying here? He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. What is the obvious dilemma with that statement? Well, it's this. Does it look like to you Jesus has authority on heaven and earth? Does this earth look like Jesus owns it to you? The answer is no. When we watch the news or scroll through our social media feed, the last conclusion we would make is that Jesus reigns. In fact, it would seem that the opposite is true. Evil reigns, Jesus is nowhere to be found. Does Jesus own Charlottesville last week? Does Jesus own the public universities that are starting up again this week for another year of telling the future generation that Jesus himself and his claims are silly myths for the unlearned? Does Jesus own North Korea? Does Jesus own Syria? Call me cynical if you want, but it sure doesn't seem like Jesus owns heaven and earth. So which is it? His claim in Matthew 28 of ownership or the very real circumstances of this depraved world? Well, the answer is that Jesus does own all things, but it's tough to see. I'll illustrate it with what is going to take place tomorrow um, afternoon around 2.30. Surely you didn't think you were going to get through the sermon without an eclipse illustration, right? I mean, it's just serve it up, preacher. Uh, so yeah, every preacher in America has been hard at work trying to work the eclipse into their sermon. Here's my attempt. Here you go. Um, all right. 
So tomorrow something amazing is going to happen. The sun will be shining, but it will not look like it is shining. Nothing will be different, and yet everything will be different. It will be darkness all around us, but that 27 million degree star in the sky will still be there, shining as bright as it does every single day. It's not that the sun is gone. It's not that the sun does not rain. It's that the moon is blocking the sun. And this is a very helpful way to understand fallen creation. Jesus rules and he reigns supreme over all things as the sun reigns supreme over our sky. But the fall is like an eclipse of his ownership. Blocking out his reign. Casting a dark evil shadow over all of creation. But do not be fooled by the shadow. Jesus reigns. Just like you must not be fooled tomorrow afternoon. It will seem like the sun is not as bright. It will seem like the sun is not shining. But if you look at it without your eclipse glasses, you will burn your retinas. And so it is for the risen Lord Jesus. Do not be fooled by the darkness that is all around us. Jesus reigns, even if it doesn't look like he reigns. And all who deny his reign will one day face the brilliant brightness of his glory when he returns and the veil of the fall is removed and his authority floods creation as the waters cover the sea. But today, we live beneath the shadow of the fall and that is why creation does not seem like it belongs to him. Which brings us to the demand of this verse. Jesus gathers his disciples and he says, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me, but it does not look like all authority belongs to him. So what disciples of Jesus who recognize his reign are you going to do about that is the point. The call that we see here is that we are to bring the reign of Christ to bear upon his congregation, upon his creation that rightfully belongs to Christ. We are to subdue what belongs to him. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Think about the sun illustration. <laughs> but he also says to his disciples, you are the light of the world. That they just sang that to us. So make the connection. We are ambassadors of his reign here on earth. And so his demand is to subdue what rightfully belongs to him. And that is what ultimately brings him glory. We say we exist for the glory of Christ, but at the end of the day, what does that even mean? What does it even mean to exist for his glory? Well, we have to understand the connection between his authority and his glory. The authority of Christ is simply a fact, an undeniable fact. He does own all things. All authority in heaven and earth belong to the risen Jesus. The glory of Christ only shines when the, that fact breaks through the darkness. The glory of Christ is what takes place when the reality of his authority is realized. When his authority, which is hidden by the fall, becomes visible, so shines his glory. Or 
the glory, of, the glory of Christ is recognized when the authority of Christ is realized. Wherever he reigns, his glory shines. So, if we say that we exist for the glory of Christ, then what we are truly saying is that we exist to establish the authority of Christ because the light of his glory emanates from the reign of his authority. Now, next week we are going to apply that to the world where he says, that's where he ultimately takes it, right? Therefore, go and make disciples of the nations. Do you get it? Again, do you get, do you get the Great Commission now? I own all things. It doesn't look like I own all things. Go, make it look like I own all things. Go to the nations. I want you to baptize them in my name. I want you to teach them what I've commanded and so bring my authority to the nations so that my glory might shine in this world. We'll get there. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's where we'll ultimately take that. But before we talk about the call to go next week to the bluegrass, I want us to personalize things this week. And this is really, really, really important, okay? If you join us in our vision to exist for the glory of Christ, then you are therefore committing yourself to a lifetime of yielding to the authority of Christ. For when his authority is realized in your life, your life will glorify him. Before we talk about the nations in general and the bluegrass specifically being subdued for Christ's glory, we need to talk about our own lives. I know a lot of people who are very zealous for evangelism, missions. I know a lot of culture warriors. Just win the culture for Christ. And their lives are a mess. <laughs> and you want to say, how about start with your life? How about subdue your own heart for Jesus before we talk about subduing the nations for Jesus? So here's the simple question for you this morning, for all of us this morning, and I'm going to make it really simple, but the answer to that is not so simple. Here's the question. Who owns you? Who has authority over you? Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That has global implications, but it starts with particular implications. It starts with you. Jesus owns you. Whether he looks like he owns you or not, Jesus owns you. Do you know what Christian conversion is, ultimately? Giving Jesus what is rightfully his. Of course, Giving ourselves to Jesus saves us. Of course, that's true. But it saves us because it is a decision to relent and bow down to his authority rather than the insane attempt to contend against his authority. So if you are not a follower of Jesus today, allow me to extend to you a very unconventional invitation that you may probably have never heard before. Let me invite you into this thing called Christianity in an unconventional way. Instead of raging against the authority of Jesus in a dispute you cannot win, give to Jesus what rightfully belongs to him, your life. Surrender to the authority of Jesus. Now here's what you will find. And it might come as a surprise, a pleasant surprise. In submission you will at last be free.
Because if it is true that Jesus is your rightful owner, and it's true, if it is true that Jesus is your rightful owner, then you will only flourish under his ownership, not yours. All of life's problems, all of the destruction in your life is owed to your authority, your ownership, your lordship. We said it in our repentance. Has your own authority failed you? It has. Has the authority of Jesus Christ failed you? Never. You will find in in, in giving yourself to the authority of Jesus that you will flourish because he is your rightful owner. But to those who have surrendered to Jesus, I want to pose the same question to you as well. I I want to ask you, who owns you? Your answer to that, if you're a follower of Jesus, is unashamedly Jesus. Jesus owns me. But I f- my concern is that your life is like my life. And too often there is a divide between that admission and application. And what I want to say to you this week is that before there is any talk of reaching the nations for Christ of subduing culture for Christ, of changing the bluegrass for Christ, it starts with me and you. And surprisingly, what I've discovered is that that internal application is more difficult than the external application. It is far easier to fight for the authority of Christ out there than right here. A couple weeks ago, I said that I would love for our congregation to recalibrate ourselves around the feet of Jesus this year. That we would not allow the busyness of ministry to distract us from the call to just sit and listen. Well, do you know ultimately what the call to sit at the feet of Jesus and to listen to his teaching is? It is a call to surrender. To sit and listen is to surrender to his authority. It is a posture of surrender. So again, I ask you, Christian, who owns you? Not what your lips would say to that question, but what your life would say to that question. Who's in charge of your schedule? You or Jesus? Who's in charge of your money? You or Jesus? Who is in charge of your sexuality? You or Jesus? Who's in charge of your tongue? What you say? You or Jesus? Who's in charge of your imaginations? Who's in charge of your private life when no one is watching? Who is in charge of this school year, students? Who is in charge of your marriage? Who is in charge of your parenting? Who is in charge of your appetites? Who is in charge of your vocation? Who has authority over you? You or the risen Lord Jesus? The answer to all of those questions is in our verse explicitly. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I think that includes you. The question of ownership has already been answered. The answer is Jesus. But my question for us is, does it look like Jesus owns us? Does it look like Jesus owns you? More specifically, I would say this, where does it look like Jesus is not in charge? And you know. Where's your holdout of autonomy? Survey your life. 
for the areas where you are raging against his authority. And I want you to apologize to your owner and repent and relent. And what you will find is that things are actually really good under his reign. His authority is so much better than your authority, Christian. His yoke is easy. Listen, it's a yoke. He owns you. He's got you around the neck. But his yoke's easy. His burden is light. Listen, it's a burden. You're his. You're his servant. You're his slave. But his burden is light. His lordship is love. He's Lord, but his lordship is love. And he's already proven that to you. What's interesting about this statement in verse 19 is it comes right on the heels of the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth laying down all authority in heaven and earth. The one who owns us in an ultimate sense, serves us in an ultimate way as the master dies to rescue his subjects. Brothers and sisters, if you doubt the goodness of his authority, if you wonder whether it is safe to surrender, if you fear to give up control, you need only to look at his cross, that fateful three-hour eclipse where the authority of heaven and earth became the suffering servant of heaven and earth. Who owns you? Jesus owns you. But his ownership is good. Let me pray. Lord, as we come to your sacrament, which demonstrates your sacrifice, Lord, show us again that you are good and that we can surrender completely to you without fear because you have surrendered yourself to us in love. Lord, you are master, but you are a good master. You call us to lordship, but your lordship sets us free. Show us that lesson. Show us where we are contending with you, and may we relent and submit. Before there's any talk about you changing the bluegrass, Lord, change us, we pray. Amen.